Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. The phrase roosters turned into feather dusters is having a pretty good outing right now in Germany. For years, its former Chancellor Angela Merkel was lauded as leader of the free world with sky-high approval ratings. But the war in Ukraine and dramatically shifting geopolitics is threatening all that. Some are now saying her appeasement, that word, of Putin's Russia may be her greatest mistake and her unfortunate legacy. Well, to discuss whether indeed Merkel, in her 16 years in office, did do enough to prepare and to communicate to Germany and indeed Europe the risks that Putin posed, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Andreas Kluth. He's a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering European politics based in Berlin. Thank you for joining me, Andreas. Hello, Geraldine. Nice to be back. Look, there's some extraordinary stuff being written amongst uh, others by you, yourself. You've said Merkel might go down as being the Neville Chamberlain of our time, that in history lessons, this is amazing line, Merkel in Minsk will be paired with Chamberlain in Munich. Expand on that for us, please. Well, Neville Chamberlain was the British Prime Minister who uh, wanted to save Europe from war, and to do everything in his power to avert war by talking to Hitler and conceding as much as possible in the hope that this would make Hitler not go further. And in Munich, uh, he negotiated away that way uh, uh, parts of Czechoslovakia and came home to proclaim to Britain that this is peace in our time. And we now know that that it was anything but that. It was the beginning of war. Merkel, when I recently heard her in her first interview since she stopped being chancellor, sounded very similar in that she felt she had this duty to do everything possible to prevent the worst. She simultaneously claimed that she already understood in 2014 and even earlier, and I believe her, that Putin was dangerous. Uh, but that she, she didn't communicate that, but she just thought, let's keep them at the table, let's keep negotiating. And with that attitude, essentially of appeasement, she was hoping that he wouldn't do what he did this year uh, and mm-hmm. what he might do next. Look, it's extraordinary because what's emerging is that she had this uh, relentless pessimism uh, clearly, which she conveyed to her aides. She read widely. It wasn't just ignorance. She felt that the so-called rules-based order that we talk about constantly in Australia was actually fragile and could um, collapse under pressure. And clearly the advice given to her, you tell me if I'm wrong at any point, was you can't convey that to the German people. It's too bleak. Now, in retrospect, in retrospect, um, maybe she could have done a bit more of that. First of all, I agree with the advice. I would have, if, if I'd been the advisor, I would have given the same advice. I was writing these articles all these years. Germany was in a sort of um, sleep after the you know, peaceful revolution of when the wall came down and reunification, and they thought the whole world had finally seen reason and we're in this postmodern age where we all just do sing kumbaya with each other. And there was no mainstream party, no politician and no journalist in Germany that would have listened to her if she had said, wait a second, there is this huge threat and we have to take the consequences, which include not making ourselves dependent on Putin's gas and oil and coal and all of this as well. And also we have to build up our military just in case. Nobody was in the mood to listen to her, not her coalition partners, not even the opposition. That's why she got that advice, and it's not coming back to haunt us. Well, um, did anybody, was anybody speaking like that? That's my first question. And second, did she have alternatives to these, this dependence uh, on Russia, which she chose and, you know, everybody <laughs> seemed happy enough about, like in Germany? Were there other options realistically? 
To your first question, was there anybody speaking like this in Germany? You, you, the equivalent would be a Winston Churchill. Yes, the yes. Low voice is sort of almost an opposition to Neville Chamberlain back then. And the answer is there, there wasn't in politics, really. Uh, there were in the think tanks and among intellectuals, but they were not listened to. Some of them have now become well-known because they're now on talk shows because people are like, okay, you know... The mainstream media is wondering, why didn't we listen to you earlier, uh, but not at the time? And then in terms of alternatives, it's really hard because of other seemingly unrelated mistakes that Germany made as well. Uh, for example, it exited after the Fukushima disaster, it exited, decided to exit nuclear power generation. And the last three nuclear power plants are supposed to be turned off in a few months this year in the middle of this energy crisis. Okay. And uh, that, and it simultaneously was trying to increase the share of renewable energy, of course. But if you take out nuclear, uh, as the Merkel government uh, decided to do, you have to make up the, sh the shortfall. And the only way to do that was, was coal or gas. Gas is less dirty than coal. So it was supposed to be the the the, the filler mm. during these years. And that gas was supposed to come from Russia in two big pipelines, one operational and one not. And so therefore, th there were very few good options. They would have had to drop that their energy policy and they would have had to admit that Russia was an existential threat, which it wasn't yet, you know and do all these other things. So uh, she went with the path of least resistance. And, and this is, I think, her failing. This is what I'm saying is mm -hmm. she should have at least communicated that, used her bullhorn to say, wait a second, let, we can do this, but here are the risks. And she didn't do that. Well, I mean, to be fair, you said this to us on Saturday Extra when, when we were talking about her legacy, when she had those sort of sky-high ratings and saying, my goodness, here's this remarkable woman. You said, well, qualified, <laughs> a qualified remarkableness. And, um, I mean, I noticed that Oliver Moody, writing in the London Times, says she became uh, relied too heavily on a sort of entrenched um, consensus across the realms of politics, business and the media. Now, in terms of Putin, she's now saying she absolutely saw that he hated the, the Europe, he hated democracy, <laughs> uh, and yet, she, well, she certainly didn't convey... She did not convey that, did she? She did not convey that because at the time, if she had conveyed it, she could have kissed goodbye that whole policy with Russia of, yeah. of, that, we, that I'm calling appeasement. You can't say that as head of government uh, and then not earn the fallout. So she didn't say it for that reason. She, no, also she would have had to unravel so many of her policies, your point is. Exactly. It, she she mm. couldn't have done, gone on. So the official story, and by the way, Merkel as a leader is the correct subject of our conversation, Geraldine, but her coalition partners, the opposition parties, all the other parties, and then the, the on the extreme, the extreme parties, even more, they were all shades of pro-Russian or they were all in this denial. That was just the German consensus at the mm -hmm. time. So she would have, as leader, had to say, I'm going to change the consensus in my country. And this was that while there were other crises going on, unrelated crises, and she thought that was more, for example, she was always worried as much as about the Russian president. She was worried as much about the U.S. president because that was Trump for a while. And she feared and and she may turn out to be right there, too, that Trump could come back. So there were a lot of things to manage. And she said, mm -hmm. I can't voice this on my population right now. I believe that's what she was thinking. Well, she says, I gather, um, that uh, it, it, it's all very well for people to say all of this now. Neville Chamberlain would have said the same thing. But she felt it was critically important to keep the biggest uh, country, the biggest nation in Europe, well, in the European continent, at the table. Um, now, you can see how, how she is thinking, and that's, of course, when the whole change through trade 
policy came in, uh, make commerce, you know, rather than politics, the the um, interlocutor. She now says she never thought it would work. But she doesn't believe she has to apologise for anything. Well, the, the interesting thing, and by the way, we can already add, and I think it's of interest in Australia, she did the same with China, mm. okay? She mm. arguably, we will soon be having conversations, you and I, about that problem because she, in a different way, not, not natural gas, but commercial interweave, interweaving, she made Germany also dependent on the Chinese economy and when she should have seen and probably did see that threat as well. But if you go back to, yeah, you're absolutely right. The thing is, what would the alternative have been She in, to appeasement? She could have said, wait a second, I think you're such a threat, Putin, I'm going to stop all this. But then she probably would have, if you now think yourself into the psychology and politics of the Kremlin, provoked such a crisis even earlier. I mean, well, it wouldn't have made that, the crisis go away. Th- that's you know? the argument that she, I think, even made in this one interview she's given, that she bought the Ukrainians' time so that if they had been asked, like in 2014 to 2021, she actually bought them time, much like, I think, Neville Chamberlain virtually said that too. Um, you, you buy time to, to equip yourself and to have a, have a chance. And I think that's actually... True. I don't think that gets her out of jail. You know, Merkel, she's making it too easy of herself. But that's true, because in 2014, the Ukraine was a different country. The, it, it was corrupt. It didn't have Zelensky, the heroic president, yet. There was not that same fighting spirit. And certainly militarily, it, 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 it wouldn't have lasted as long. So in that sense, she was right. But it's we didn't hear that from her time that she was saying, oh, I'm buying the Ukrainians' time, but I see the risk. No, no, no. It was my, no, we'll talk, we'll keep talking to Russia and we'll keep building, having this pipeline that, that we're talking about right now where, where mm-hmm. Putin is throttling the gas. And we're going to build a second pipeline to double our dependence <laughs> on, on, on Russian gas. That was what throughout the, in 2014 and all these years, what she was doing, and that doesn't make sense, you see. I mean, um, to, and, and, to double uh, down on the dependency doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't. Um, and 46, just to add to that, 46% of German, German manufacturers rely on China for their supply chain. So, I mean, this is, there is this other realm as well, as you alluded to. And not just um, supply chains, but certain raw earths and materials and, the, you know, um, components like semiconductors. I mean, there are lots of problems that the German economy, which was supposed to be the strongest in, in, in past crises um, that you've covered, you know, mm. usually Germany had to bail out the, the southern economies. Now it, everything's flipped. Germany is the, in terms of the, the energy problem and some of the Chinese export problems and stuff, uh, one of the most at risk in the European Union. Yeah, look, just last reflection, I suppose. Um, it, it must be profound, the rethinking underway in Germany, given its history and its sense that it, it really could grab the yield of peace and, and be a constructive country. I mean, just give me an idea of what's going on in the conversations you're having. The profound rethinking right now is happening between people like Geraldine Duke and Andreas Kluth and Andreas Kluth and the in private conversations, politicians and think tank people in Berlin. Uh, it is not yet happening on the television talk shows and pub because it's, it requires the German mainstream to say, the, the, all the things we thought were true since reunification were wrong. Gee. We were wrong. And also we lectured our partners in Europe. We lectured these naive Americans. We lectured everyone who said you're, you're wrong because people did tell them you're wrong. We said, no, no, you don't understand. And so this is psychologically very difficult. You don't, you don't um, come, come clean on your own past sins overnight it's happening, but it'll take time. And a lot of people are still in denial because they're into, these intellectuals, professor, philosophers and stuff, Germany is known for philosophers. They keep writing open letters in the newspapers 
essentially regurgitating these old arguments because they can't, they would have to disavow essentially entire careers worth of writing and speaking. And that is very hard. So it's just starting to happen. Is that why Germany hasn't delivered? That's the other thing. The English get so annoyed having just been there. The Germany hasn't yet delivered the equipment it says it's going to deliver to the Ukraine. And there's a sort of barely contained fury from time to time among the English about this. That's actually officially started as of this week, the, uh-huh. these first anti-aircraft tanks um, uh, actually are there on the ground. But that's, that's like months after they, they, they were supposed to be there. That is, I would say, a symptom of the disease. It's this evasive is what it is. The word is pivot, I think, uh, that is needed, <laughs> Andreas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what an amazing... What an amazing set of developments. Thank you very much indeed for joining us again and outlining uh, some of the impact in Germany. Thank you, Geraldine. Andreas Kluth, he's a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering European politics. I notice Yanis Varoufakis, who I know our own listeners follow a lot, former uh, finance minister of Greece, wrote in Project Syndicate, uh, reprinted in the Financial Review this week, uh, that waking up to the news that your country's business model is busted is very difficult. Greeks know this feeling. We felt it in our bones in the early 2010, he writes. My message to German friends is simple. Quit mourning, cut through the denial, anger, bargaining and depression and start designing a new economic model. Just thinking of what Andreas was saying there at the end about the fact that this isn't a full-on debate yet in uh, German public opinion. Now, this has really got a lot of you going, so thank you for your texts. They're, <laughs> they're, very, they're most intriguing, very um, l- learned group, Saturday Extra listeners. Well, up next, digitising our public service. We've seen how a major event such as COVID can catapult so many of us into the digital age, work from home, QR codes, telehealth, just a few of the now ubiquitous adjustments in our lives. And while we might congratulate governments for adapting so quickly on some levels, there's a far broader and more fundamental discussion that needs to take place about how government and policy operate in the digital age. Martin Stewart Weeks is a strategic innovation and policy reform expert who's been writing about this and he joins me now. Good morning, Martin. Hello, Geraldine. Nice to talk to you. Um, Look, along with many other experts in the space, you say that uh, the digital transformation connecting people with government services isn't adequate or fast enough. And I know there's been a big conference about that this week. How far behind do you believe Australian governments or the Australian public service or the state public services, for that matter, are when it comes to digital savviness? Yeah, it's a good question. It's always hard to calibrate these things too um, scientifically. I mean, there are some leaders in the field that are often trotted out quite rightly, people like Estonia and Singapore and some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark in particular, uh, is often uh, uh, drawn out as uh, countries where the, if you like, the most thoroughgoing refit almost of a sort of a whole new paradigm of digital service delivery has really set the pace. So we're certainly not at that space, but I think we are, um, I think we're we're getting there. And one of the things that really came out of that conference, by the way, this week, I agree, was a very important gathering, was two things. Um, one is that, yes, we are making progress down this path in ways that are very promising. But almost everybody I heard speak, uh, whether it was from the front line of the bureaucracy or the uh, the politicians who were there, uh, kind of had a further and faster kind of method. We've got to go further and we've got to go faster. Second message, and this is often a big challenge, of course, for a country like Australia um, compared, let's say, to a Singapore or a Denmark or an Estonia, um, is that we have a very complicated game to play here across the Federation. But what I'm hearing more and more in the last six months, even certainly the last 12 months, and COVID, I think, is responsible for at least some of this, is that this is a game that we have increasingly got to play on an integrated and national and uh, common uh, basis as opposed to constantly trying to cut this game up into seven or eight different pieces and each of us trying to do bits of it on our own. Well, the awful spectre of the rail gauge <laughs> from earlier exactly. in Australia's life yeah. rears its head. 
Precisely. And I think Victor Dominello, Danny Pearson, two ministers who were there this week would be the first to tell you that, you know, we're trying desperately to avoid the rail gauge problem. We've been a bit slow at getting on with that. I think COVID has reinforced the fact that, you know, um, uh, unaligned rail gauges in a digital context are are just not um, very good and not very helpful. So we are beginning to get that lesson, I think, embedded into what I'm sensing is a much more cooperative and a much more kind of cross-border um, capacity to get some of these big solutions and these big new pieces of what we might call digital infrastructure, these big new service platforms built on a basis that they can be much more easily shared and integrated. So, I mean, in a sense, I suppose the the over the, the theme coming through is the search for an integrated, trusted, personal identification yeah. system. This is part of it, isn't it? Now, I did read commentary that suggested that it's like, say, Denmark has got this well and truly underway and mm. that it's an angle Anglo-Saxon obsession with not having a central uh, identity f- uh, number that is stymieing us. Now, is that fair? Yeah. I think it's got something to do with it. I really do. You and I are old enough and other people listening to this program to remember yeah, the, the great Australian debates over the last 30 years or more around ID cards and all the rest of it uh, and single IDs. And, and in the Australian context, it's true in the UK as well to some extent, as you say, uh, as that commentary makes out in the Anglo-Saxon world. We do tend to get pretty anxious about this notion that at the core of all of this is the need to have a single trusted shareable way of describing effectively who we are and proving who we are and and having that on either a little card or in some other digital form. It does appear certainly that in the Northern European context where that notion of essentially having a single ID all the way through your life um, is is something that's rather more baked into uh, both culture and practice does uh, help. Because to some extent, the underlying premise of this notion of single platforms, shared service uh, capacity and so on, does mean that as you work through those shared platforms, you've got to be able to have a pretty robust way of defining and describing and protecting who you are, the data that's then surrounding you and all the rest of it and how you engage with these services. And we're making progress. It's a bit fraught. Um, There are certainly lots of uh, bits of work now going on both at the state and federal level around um, uh, identity systems and and the rest. They are becoming a little bit more aligned and I'm getting a sense I'm not a deep expert in some of those areas. They're quite technically complicated. No question about that. Um, But there is a sense I'm picking up that we are now reaching that phase where people are saying, honestly, we do have to get this uh, issue sorted and we have to get it sorted as much as possible on a single or an integrated Australian basis as opposed to state by state um, doing uh, at least not so much their own thing, but different things. That's what we're trying Uh, to get through. Are the Europeans or particularly the Danes, are they less worried about privacy? That's a great question. And I think there are deep cultural and sociological uh, experts who will tell you that there are different attitudes to the notion of privacy and also the notion of what it is you, if you like, owe the larger or the public sphere as a way of playing in that sphere safely and easily and conveniently. So, yes, I do think there are quite deep cultural and um, sort of social um, assumptions, if you like. Less individualism, you mean? Yeah, kind of. I think that's probably right. There is a sense of that sense of collective uh, and cooperative um, Uh, work in order to get a better sort of social and public interest outcome. There does seem to be that instinct. And if it's there, I think it's a it's a very important commodity that can be very valuable in these conversations. Well, I mean, you know, thinking of all the fuss over our health card that that was yeah. it didn't work exactly. eventually. So have they not had any major transgressions or something? Because, you know, with every problem, everything yeah. goes backwards, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question. And right off the top of my head, I certainly can't think of any huge um, sort of really cataclysmic um, problem that um, – many of these countries have had. There are always issues, of course, around privacy and data, and we know there are always those concerns about uh, people's um, private data, particularly around the health area. You're right, it's a particularly sensitive area. You can understand why. Um, suddenly finding itself on the internet or, you know, left by left by um, somebody on the on the back seat of a bus or something in the old days when we used to have um, floppy disks. Um, I, I think the answer is that the security and identity capability of many of our digital systems have grown enormously in the past. However, there's no question, and we know about it, you know, we're always constantly Mm. hearing about hacks and all the rest of it. It is a constant threat. And I think that the the issue is the more single and integrated your system in some respects, the more vulnerable you are, therefore, to potential cataclysms of that sort. 
Um, but at the moment, anyway, um, we seem to be making pretty good progress on beginning to build quite robust security and identity systems that are giving us some greater confidence, I think, that we can we can pull this trick off. I, I think what you and others writing this week were saying is that the the aim is to make things hyper-personalised, and I'm going to get mm. to that, but also mm. it's to say to people, this is not just about getting one better government website. It's, de- mm. it's deeper than that, much deeper than mm. that. Now, what, could you please expand on that? Yeah, I can. A um, couple of things. I've, I've, I've had for a long time this sense that the whole digital transformation debate in government is about a hell of a lot more than, um, you know, better better websites or, or, or fewer more integrated websites. In other words, the technology, gee wizardry of it all, all very important, all very complicated, needs to be done terribly well. What seems to me to have been going on for some time, and I've been picking up on some other work that's been going on and some new writing that I've been coming across from the UK in particular, is that what we've got to understand that's going on here, and I'll, I'll sort of quote from a particular piece of work, a young, a young fellow called James Plunkett, who's doing some fascinating writing around this, is he talks about this need that we've got to upgrade the state so that it's capable of governing in a 21st century digital economy. So, in fact, some big, deep things are going on here, that the state, the public interest, if you like, is grappling with a whole set of new forces that have been unleashed by digital technology in relation to economic value, the way that value is uh, shared and distributed, and then the way citizens engage with that process. Um, and basically, his argument is that much of our um, much of our machinery, if you like, of policymaking and service delivery has been found to be dramatically out of out of kilter and out of out of date, really, for an economy that's now beginning to have a completely different way of creating, sharing and distributing value. So his argument is that, yes, it it is certainly about many of the transactional issues, better service platforms, all that kind of stuff. But actually, deep down, Mm -hmm. there's what he would describe as a very, very uncomfortable but necessary paradigm shift going on here in the instincts and procedures and culture of the way we govern our economy. And it's uh, there's a bit of a mismatch at the moment and we've got to catch up, we being those of us who are interested in how the state and how government uh, manages. We've got, a, we've got a big catch-up game going on. Yes. I mean, you, along with co-authors, have outlined 10 ways the public service can make life better for citizens and redesigning yeah. how the public service and governments interact with us. Uh, with us, the population. Just, mm. just highlight, if you would, not to 10, but the main no. changes you think. I, I still think a lot of listeners, well, I can tell by the text line, will say, oh, look, yeah. this is peripheral, you know? Yeah. Or it's socialist. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are yeah, right. Yeah, well, there's, there, there is a kind of digital socialism. That's right. We're kind of, you know, one, one, one digital system to rule them all, um, which is a, it can be a slightly worrying concept. Uh, I mean, I think th- I think the number of things we put together in that article were trying to suggest two two things. One is, first of all, let's make sure we frame and understand the significance of what's going on here in relation to three particular lenses, service delivery improvement, the way in which we create new forms of productivity, and the way in which we reset and revivify, if you like, and re-energize our, our sort of democratic engagement with citizens. That, that's definitely what's going on. Once you start getting that bigger frame, then you can start doing some very, very practical things. Make things a hell of a lot simpler. Fewer websites. Don't keep asking people for the same information constantly. Start sharing information safely, ethically and appropriately, but doing it in a way which makes it much, much easier for people to do the jobs they need to get done without having to sit there at the front of the system figuring out where the hell do I start, who do I call. Mm. Uh, As we talk about in the article, we are increasingly in an age where people are less and less interested I think we use the phrase, you know, whose badge is on the uh, digital front door. The question is how integrated and rapidly and Does safely it work? Does can it crash? we get it done? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that matters a lot to people, you know, um, as uh, Tom Burton, who's one of the core authors of that, of that piece and who runs the, 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 the government uh, round, as it were, for the Fin Review, uh, constantly reminds us, you know, government is a very, very large chunk of the economy in its own right, never mind all the other impacts it has on the economy. This stuff does matter. If we don't get this well, uh, well done and well um, organised, then the impact on people's lives, the impact on things like productivity and weight and jobs, all the things that the current government is, you know, grappling with, this stuff absolutely matters. Government, the way government plays into that game, is increasingly significant, and it needs to be right at the top of its game, if you like. Um, and yes, you're right; it can all sound a little bit kind of. Uh, transactional and sort of technical and a few boffins at the back trying to make the website run better. But actually what's happening is that government is trying to make itself 
um, the kind of um, significant and efficient and productive player in the bigger context um, that it's that it needs to be if the whole game is going to work as well as it needs to. Let me just tell listeners that Martin Stewart Weeks is my guest. He's a, a policy reform specialist who's been fascinated by the way government works for many years. Um, let's turn to where governments are leading the way, and it would seem mm. that New South Wales is in front on this stuff. Uh, I noticed that the New South Wales Minister for Customer Service and Digital, uh, uh, Victor Dominello, has ha- had quite a, a run this week. Um, yeah. And even other governments, even Victoria, <laughs> is uh, conceding <laughs> that New South Wales is really out ahead of the rest when it comes to digital services and offerings for its population. Now, what is it that it is doing so well that other states are observably trying to sort of join in with? It's a great. It's a great question, and there is a there is a, a real outbreak of, of goodwill and, and and friendship going across the New South Wales Victoria border at the moment, which I think is great, um, and I think it's happening across other borders too. By the way, um, the first thing Victor Dominella will tell you is the first thing you've got to do is start about eleven years ago. Um, so basically, this journey <laughs> basically this journey started when um, um, Barry O'Farrell came in uh, and, and a number of others. Yeah, exactly. He's Premier of New South Wales and started the Service New South Wales Revolution. Um, so, yes, it's a long journey, right? This has taken at least a decade and it is still going on. But a few things that have happened that I think are really powerful. The first is that you've got to start driving at the political level a certain amount of um, for, no, yeah, a certain amount of force change in the simplification of the number of platforms and the number of pieces of the technology uh, puzzle that you're going to have. So Service New South Wales and the digital platforms underneath it are now increasingly common across government. Not an easy game to play because most agencies and most pieces of government will always tell you that they need to have their own little piece of the pie because they're special, they're different, and they need their own uh, engagement. So you'll find that people like Dominello uh, and the premiers that he has been fortunate enough, I think, in some respects to work with, have been prepared to drive quite a hard bargain with ministers and therefore with bureaucrats to say, no, no, we can't do that anymore. We've got increasingly to have fewer larger, more competent and more capable platforms, which is essentially what Service New South Wales has become. So that's the first thing. The second thing you've got to do is invest in a lot of work, a lot of hard work. And as I say, it's well over a a decade now and still going. A lot of hard work in what I would call technology rebuild and technology design. Everything from your websites, the service uh, platforms beneath that, the information systems, the digital, uh, sorry, the identity and the security systems that go underneath that and so on and so forth. Some of that work is still not finished um, by any means, but it is beginning to move. So essentially what you're trying to do and what I think Victor has been so um, successful in arguing both at the political and then driving it through the Um, administrative level is that we just need a system with fewer moving parts. That's essentially the simplest way of arguing what New South Wales has done. And the truth is, it bloody well works. And we've had so many good reasons now to test that. Well, when I say good reasons, difficult reasons. COVID, fires, floods. When this stuff hits and you've got a robust system that is made up of a few incredibly effective and widely shared platforms that allow people to navigate their way through, whether it's getting help if they're in the middle of a flood um, or getting out notices in the middle of COVID. It's just quicker and it works. The last thing I would quickly say, and I think uh, uh, the minister would agree with this, particularly in the last couple of years, is the movement of this game right into the heart of government. And by that, I mean basically on a par with Treasury. And therefore, it means that when... Oh, yes. Now, I think what's happened in New South Wales is that decisions about where to invest and how to invest are taken at a central level where there are conditions being put then on, on agencies and ministers to say, yes, we're very happy to help you build your digital tools and your digital um, capability, but it's got to be done in a certain way. Otherwise, we're not going to give you the money. It's kind of almost that tough. So you'll find now that Victor Dominello is buried quite correctly, in my view, right at the heart of the decision and and resource allocation process in government. And that's the point mm. at which at which change starts. And of course, one of the things, I mean, we've got to go shortly, but, you know, the delivery to the flood victims, that was apparently one of the ways in which it was absolutely stress tested. They got, I mean, I know there's a lot who will instantly text me and say they haven't had all that they need. No, indeed, and it's not perfect. But obviously it was better for the floods than for the fires, for instance, because things had moved along just that much. 
No question. And mm. one of the speakers at the conference, interestingly, quickly, Rebecca Skinner, who runs the Service Australia um, at the national level, very much based on much of what we've learned from Service New South Wales, had some very powerful statistics about how astonishingly quick some aspects of that flood relief work, particularly at the Centrelink level, if I can go to federally just briefly. The truth is the investment in this kind of digital and technical as well as governance reform does pay dividends and it is paying dividends. It is not perfect. I absolutely understand that. I read those texts too and I read those Twitter complaints and, and, and it's not completely smooth, but compared to where we were a decade ago, it's chalk and cheese, it really is. And I, we are on the road and we are going to go further. Can I just ask you one quick one? Singapore's mm. launched a digital academy to train its public servants in yeah. digital skills, including the senior ones, I gather. Yeah. Um, where are we on that score? We're getting there. Um, we have a similar uh, or something similar that's beginning to develop in at the federal level, the Leadership Academy. I think the infusion of digital into the way in which we train our public sector leaders, I would say, has made a lot of progress in the last few years. But my own personal view is it has to go a hell of a lot further. The other place that we can look to is Canada, who've done some wonder, and actually some of the South American countries, some amazing work that says really now we've got to the stage where we cannot let our public sector leaders at every level, including the senior people, progress much further without having a pretty sound capability in the ability to use and apply these kinds of new tools. Yeah. So that game is going to have to lift very rapidly as well. Mm. Martin Stewart Weeks, thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure. Nice to talk. Thanks, Geraldine. Martin Stewart Weeks, who's part of a group who was uh, taking part in a, a big conference, I think, um, hosted by the Financial Review this week on digital skills. And thank you for all your very interesting texts on that as well. Well, up next, the CWA and the wonder of it. Have you ever heard of the Country Women's Association? Yes. What's it mean to you? Um, just a group of women that try to help people out in situations, you know, for the community. It has been referred to as the Cranky Women's Association. Oh, definitely. They discuss all sorts of things uh, and uh, they all get uh, a great kick out of it. Well, first of all, to overcome the loneliness, to be able to get women together to talk over, even if it was only the families or the turkeys they were raising, it was a great day to get away from the home and meet other women. I do think the Country Women's Association is my main interest as I became president this year and I do look forward very much to our monthly meetings. I think the last comment there taken from ABC Archives, that gorgeous, rather says a lot. For almost a century, the Country Women's Association, the CWA, has been a mainstay of Australian country life. It's perhaps also true that few people have explored the full scope of the achievements and history of the CWA, which, as you've just heard, is sometimes uh, perceived, misperceived, as a scone-baking social gathering. Oh, how misguided that is. The first branch of the CWA started 100 years ago, and community historian Liz Harfel has unearthed some of the stories from the grassroots of the organisation in her new book, The Women Who Changed Country Australia, celebrating 100 years of the Country Women's Association of New South Wales. Liz, welcome to the program. Thank you, Geraldine. And I've already had um, texters. One man, a husband, said, my wife is reminding you it's still underway. <laughs> this is not looking back at something that's gone. This is still well and truly in action, isn't it? Very definitely. Um, there's still a vibrant organisation in which thousands of women um, are doing great things for their communities. Yeah, and yours was just of one state. Um, there have been other histories too, aren't, haven't there, uh, written? You wrote this during COVID. You decided to turn COVID to your advantage. But it it is amazing to think it's just one state you're describing. Yes, it is because you know, with, you know, in New South Wales alone, we're talking at their peak thirty thousand members and some extraordinary achievements. So, yeah, remarkable organisation. What were the drivers behind the creation of the association in nineteen twenty two? The main drivers was the state of you know the quality of life for country women and their families, which. Are, Shockingly, many of the issues we're still dealing with today, but, you know, um, poor communication, poor roads, poor schools, lack of maternity services and um, baby care, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so many just poor quality of housing and uh, very similar issues, actually, to what what country people would be talking about now. I mean, top some of the statistics you reveal really did take my breath away. Top of their list was transport and maternity health. In the 30 years leading up to the CWA forming, 9,000 women died in childbirth in New South Wales alone. Yes. And during the First World War, this is the other shocking statistic, during the First World War, as many infants died in Australia from mostly preventable causes as men died at the front. Mm. Uh, So the context of that explains their passion for for those two areas of endeavour. Heck of a lot more than making scones. Um, How quickly did the the CWA... Well, it sort of annoys me, you know, listening in its own way, having read this and realising how substantial, seriously substantial it is, that it's it's not spoken about like that. Yeah, um, and look, it it didn't... um, It's really interesting because they had their first delegation to a minister within 24 hours of being formed. So they were right from the beginning really focused on advocacy. That was their, they, they actually mm. said, we're not a charity. We're here to advocate for country families. So, and um, yeah, it's worth remembering that, I think, and it's still something, particularly in New South Wales, that are exceptionally good at. How quickly did it grow? Um, it was a struggle in the early months. They had no money and no resources. Um, so the members of the first committee actually had to hit the road and travel to little communities and try and stir up interest in forming branches. And it was a struggle. Uh, and then Queensland got on board and formed an association in August and, and uh, you know, a few about four or five months after the original um, association was formed and then it slowly started to build and um, by the end of the following year they were well you know they were growing quite quickly. Right now difficult question here but important I think did they also help or involve Indigenous women was it very much a white? Yeah well it's it's very interesting they were actually pioneers in involving Indigenous women in New South Wales. Um, They refused to have any statutes on the books that uh, discriminated about who could join. Um, And in the 1950s, they had a president who focused on working with Indigenous women and they set up six branches um, that were based in uh, Indigenous communities. Um, Anyone could join and some of these branches had, uh, you know, uh, other members of the CWA who, who, who joined to help them. Um, and they did some great work over, you know, in that period leading up until the sort of mid-1960s um, of, of uh, you know, helping those women use the advocacy skills of the CWA to improve their living conditions um, to, to quite some effect. So very surprising. But you did have some rather disturbing elements too where I think there was a visitor from um, Queensland, uh, which was also a very active CWA, yeah. um, when there were people trying to pass um, uh, motions about in, involving Indigenous women and this woman came down and said, oh, remember, they have a lot of terrible diseases. But actually, I think the motion was passed anyway. Am I right? Correct, yeah. yes. Um, they had uh, some members who who were very determined that they needed to do what they could and, and right back as early as the late 1920s to... Um, to help uh, Indigenous women, you know, for example, you know, the fact that they had no um, maternity facilities and, you know, sometimes they're travelling on the back of a truck to get to the nearest hospital. And, um, but I take they it they... were very determined to do something about that, yes. But they haven't <clears throat> occupied, or have they, um, office-bearing positions, to the best of your knowledge? Um, well, uh, within these branches they did, yes. Um, not to my knowledge at a, a state level, no. Look, if you had time to go, a chance to go back in time, which CWA leader would you like to observe or what moment would you like to experience? Right. Well, there's a few, but I think the standout one for me is a woman called um, Ida Beveridge, who um, was quite a remarkable woman and um, I guess described by some as as the CWA's equivalent of Winston Churchill in the power of her public speaking. She was, she was well, someone who was describing her said she had an almost magical power as a public speaker. And she was the president at the time Australia 
and went to war in the Second World War. Um, she'd been warning them um, to get ready. She'd organised um, first aid classes and fitness classes for women in the 1938. Um, she, she said, we need to be ready. There's, you know, war is potentially coming. And then in 1940, she was um, amongst a group of about 300 women leaders that the governor's wife, Lady Wakehurst, got together and they had a public meeting in Sydney to stir up women to get involved in the war effort and something like 10,000 women showed up, packed the Sydney Town Hall, spilled out into the street and Ida's address was meant to be one of the highlights of that night, um, encouraging women to do more than catering and knitting. You know, we mm. needed to do more. And she headed up the very first version of the Women's Land Army and the first people who tra women who trained, trained on her property, um, Billabong in the Junee district. Um, so, yeah, she was quite a remarkable woman and the right person in the right place at the right time. She certainly, I've become totally interested in Ida having read <laughs> read bits of your book. And this lovely, she wrote inspiring messages in the Association's journal. We live in an age when women have learned to organise and we realise the power that has come into our hands through organisation. I mean, I thought, my goodness, that also was the case with the Teals, for instance, in the recent election, wasn't it? So th this is a, yes, a very she, important she, set of experiences. Yes. She was, I mean, she was a great scholar. She'd won the McCallum Prize for English at Sydney University. I mean, she was born in 1875 and she got a scholarship if parents weren't wealthy to go to Sydney University. And so she was gifted in many ways. She also travelled a lot and was very much aware of what was happening internationally and international politics. She even made a run for Senate at one stage, unfortunately unsuccessfully, because I think she would have made a great, a great um, member of parliament. Look, I'm just getting so many texts coming through. Um, is it possible to repeat the number of women who died in childbirth? I'm afraid I can. It was 9,000 women um, and just really a truly shocking sort of uh, in, in, in New South Wales alone in the 30 years. So that's in the late 1800s. And another question um, that they have quite a few city branches. One of our texters has said, uh, Liz, my sister in inner yeah. city Leichhardt, for instance, in Sydney is a member of the Sydney City branch. How many are there? I can't tell you how many, but they certainly have a very strong city membership. And city women have been able to be um, full members since 1930. It was recognised really early on that that's where the real potential lay for, for fundraising when they wanted to achieve things like building maternity hospitals and seaside homes. So the city members have been a crucial part of the organisation for most of its history. I might add, uh, Meg from Tamworth says CWA rep rep represents chicks with attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> uh, look, um, how did it change with the times? Because you do devote a bit of time to worries, you know, particularly after the 1960s with all that feminist era in full swing, hemlines are rising, many people are living in cities. Does it yeah. have tough times? It does. I mean, that period was probably its its darkest hour. Um, there were real changes to society in Australia and they were perceived as being, well, you know, uh, part of the, the piece that you ran earlier was um, a reference to them being fuddy-duddies, which is a term I love. They were considered, you know, old-fashioned and out of touch um, and not really interested in, the new, in you know, women and their careers outside the home. But they... they, they are very attuned to what's going on. And so in the 70s, they sort of changed their focus and they moved away from sort of baby centres to setting up childcare, for example, for working women. And, and I mean, there are a lot um, of women now, sorry to cut across you, but like in agriculture, mm. really interesting new agriculture, running stations, breeding livestock, talking about regenerative farming and so on. So does yeah. the CWA fit into their, those sorts of women, does the CWA fit into their lives, would you say? It, it definitely does. I mean, in recent times, uh, well, not so recent now, probably about 20 years ago, they set up an environmental and agriculture committee, which, um, you know, they do things like study different flora and fauna and environmental issues. They've campaigned on environmental issues. They've marched in the streets on, you know, protecting um, land and water resources from mining. So 
they have, you know, um, and they're very focused too on championing a different agricultural industries, um, which is, a, you know, they began that in the late 1920s when, when they got into handicraft to save the Australian wool industry. Um, and, and then there was a remarkable woman from Leeton, Gwen Green, who campaigned to save the Australian fruit canning industry. She, uh, she turned around a time when they had over 4 million cans of fruit they thought they wouldn't be able to sell. And Within a few months of her efforts and, and the CWA backing her, um, you know, they, the Australian supply sold out. <laughs> so, wow. And that was in the 1930s. So, you know, in every decade, there's probably um, an agricultural or environmental issue that they've championed and, and uh, got involved in. Some have said, uh, some obviously didn't like it. Country women can uh, organise themselves very nicely and socialise without having to join the Country Women's Association. What <laughs> our texters have said. <gasps> Well, and that is that's true. But I think um, one of the things about the CWA is that they harness that time together to um, to to get involved in fundraising and supporting people. And you know, I think the current um, uh, floods and what's happening there is a great example. Um, the branch at Lismore have lost their club rooms, and yet their members are out there, um, you know, delivering food and. And hand knitted rugs and all sorts of things um, right. to the community. So, yeah. All right, Liz. Well, look, well done. Um, what a very well spent COVID uh, time. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Liz Harfel, H A R F U L L, the women who changed country Australia, celebrating 100 years of the CWA of New South Wales, published this month by Murdoch Books. And one of our listeners has also recommended Dr. Jennifer Jones' marvellous book, Country Women and the Colour Bar, a history of the Aboriginal CWAs. That's from Virginia Rose. Thank you, Virginia. And look, before I go, I did say that I would read some very passionate feedback after our Gone with the Wind discussion, if you recall, two weeks back with Sarah Churchwell. If you didn't hear, check out the Listen app. It's really worth listening to. For instance, from Ian Hoskins, who in the 1990s taught a course at the University of Sydney called The Black Experience in America. And this is his uh, very passionate text sent straight away. My overwhelming reaction to your interview was despondency that such a book, excellent though it sounds, should still have to be written and that its analysis of Mitchell's novel and the film which it spawned as thoroughly racist texts should be greeted with surprise. Gone with the wind is sugar-coated with Scarlet and her handsome Rhett, uh, but no less odious than Birth of a Nation, another book which helped revive the Klan and public lynchings just 20 years earlier. Churchill's thesis is identical to much of the material we presented in our course. Most works, like the searing personal insights of James Baldwin and Richard Wright, and the brilliant interpretations of Lawrence Levine and Leon Litvak, were written in the US. But depressingly, they all seem to be just blips in the never-ending civil race war that rages in America. In Trump and his cronies, white America has its contemporary Jefferson Davis and George Wallace. Margaret Mitchell will remain a cultural hero. It is not, as Churchill maintains, that America refuses to acknowledge its past. Thousands of history books are testimony to that. It's just that their work does not matter if it is not read or believed. I lived in Atlanta for most of 1994, he writes. Three things are seared in my memory. The large Civil War battlefield signs dotted throughout the city, erected shortly after the 1954 court case that outlawed segregation to remind white Southerners of their noble sacrifice in face of ongoing Northern interference. The ignominy confronting several hundred African-American people having to attend a Democrat Party function in the so-called plantation room of a large downtown hotel and the deafening silence surrounding slavery in the privately run plantation museums I visited. It was all gush and crinoline. I imagine it still is. And another listener, Scott, said his parents would not let him and his siblings read Gone with the Wind until they were at least in high school. They said it was a pernicious book, a fairy tale that glorified a horrid way of life in the South. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.
been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.